Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on out. I'm Robert Kelly, one of the pastors here. And uh, just a big, big shout out to all of you who made uh, Night to Shine uh, possible. A truly uh, special night. We've been in this teaching series called The Me I Want to Be. So we're looking at the Bible, trying to apply his word to help us become the kind of people that uh, he originally designed us to be. One of the best secondary benefits, and Tony even hit on it, it's a side effect of Night to Shine. It's the reason so many of the volunteers can't stop talking about it, is that it made us feel great. It really did. I mean, of course, we did it for our guests, and we wanted to honor them and show them the love of Christ, but it just made us feel really good. And I think all of us want to experience a life that is filled with delight. We take a, it's a joy to serve, to give back, to see that kind of joy in another person's eyes. Some philosophers would even say that there isn't a single step you take, left or right, not a single thing you do, that isn't designed to maximize your pursuit of joy and delight. And you might argue at first and you might say, no, 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 that's not really true. Sometimes I'm just trying to avoid pain. That's true, which is a way to maximize your delight. And you say, yeah, but I don't go to work because I love it. No, you go to work because the alternative is worse. And so you go and you struggle and you sacrifice. Even in those things, you do it because you feel like long term, it will give you the most amount of joy and delight. Nothing we do, no step we take, except toward that end. The problem is that so much of what we do doesn't actually give us the delight that we expected it to give us. You know, one of the great uh, symbols of American freedom is the automobile, especially if it's a beautiful convertible Mustang, like this one or a Cobra that, this is not my car, by the way, um, but it, it would be a car that I would love to have. And, and to me, it's the symbol of, of freedom. And if you remember back in the day before you got your license, and some of you, you haven't gotten your license yet, the, the automobile feels like the symbol of our freedom because now we're going to go where we want, when we want, whenever we want, we're gonna do what we wanted. It's the ultimate sign of I'm free now. Then in my first day, by the way, that's not my car. My car was a, a Plymouth, if you even remember Plymouth, a Plymouth Reliant K car. I don't know if you remember. So that was actually my first car. Not, mine was just like that one. Uh, it's awesome car. Uh-huh. And uh, some of you are like, I don't even remember Plymouth. Right, because that's the kind of car they made, so they're gone. So day one of driving my Reliant K car, I uh, got my first speeding ticket, day one. On day two... I had taken out my father's mailbox and wrecked a whole side of his driveway, which I didn't uh, tell him about for decades. Actually, I think I told him like recently. Um, Day eight of driving, 
I had my second speeding ticket. Then I thought it was time to upgrade. So I spent the whole summer working really, really hard, blood, sweat, tears, and I upgraded. I sold that car. I traded it in, and I took all the money I had made from a, a summer of brutally hard work, and I bought a Carmen Ghia convertible. A, you, know, you guys know this car? It is a beautiful, beautiful car. Mine looked just like this one, fully restored, absolutely gorgeous. It was uh, a year or two later that I had totaled not only that car, but another car as well. And so that car, the last picture I have of my Ghia was on a flatbed as they were pulling it out of my life, having flipped it uh, numerous times. So I, the, to imagine now the financial headache and the emotional roller coaster, because I ended up putting a girl in the hospital because of my stupid decisions, the freedom that was supposed to bring me happiness, and it did for a time and in a way, ended up being a kind of freedom that's felt more like captivity. I decided to live with complete freedom in the pursuit of my happiness. But it didn't really end up the way I had hoped it would be. Recently, I drove up to Boston. And so, you know, if this is your experience when you go take a drive somewhere, the people around you will say to you, so um, how was the drive? That's what they ask me, because they're assuming the drive is always the worst part of your trip. They're like, oh, it must have been miserable. Miserable. You drive New York, Boston traffic, you got to hit traffic the whole way. It must have been terrible. And isn't that funny how things have shifted? There was a day when the activities that we loved became joyless. There was a day when the thrill of driving became the daily grind of commuting. It promises us one thing, but it becomes something else. And I think many people have a view of God and the Christian life that leads us toward a sort of burdensome experience of him. He becomes restrictive. And we don't really believe that pursuing God is going to maximize our delight. We just don't believe it. In fact, we think that God's main plan is to take away our freedom. He's actually giving us rules that are designed to hurt us, to restrict us. They interfere with, they inhibit our freedom. That's the general attitude we come away with. And even if you get your freedom, which most of us have a huge degree of freedom in how we choose to live our lives, we have to ask ourselves, what do we actually do with that freedom? You know, now we have freedom to live beyond the constraints of things like commandments and morality. We use our freedom to pursue our own success, our own pleasure, our own ambition without regard for other people. We use our freedom to take advantage of people, to belittle them, to gossip, to be unfaithful to the people who trust us. That freedom now lets us drink ourselves into oblivion or spend ourselves into debt or hook up in meaningless sexcapades. That's our freedom now. And some of us, you know what we end up doing with our freedom? And you know it. If you were to observe what most people right now are doing with their freedom, you know what it is. Precisely 
nothing. Nothing. Or at least nothing engaging or life-giving. You remember originally in the Garden of Eden, all right, this is the original garden God created. He put Adam and Eve there, and he told them, you know, this whole garden is yours. It's free to be enjoyed, but you can't do one thing. You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours, but you cannot eat from this one tree. In the day you eat of it, in that day you will surely die. But we didn't die. He didn't kill Adam and Eve the day they ate of it. And so what happened? Maybe he was bluffing. Maybe it didn't actually take place. Or maybe it's only talking about a death in the future. But I'm not so sure that's what happened. Because something seemed to have died inside of us that day. There were multiple levels of this death. And in that day, something ceased to exist in our souls. We exist. We might even think we're alive. But then something begins to nag inside our souls. Something that says, maybe I'm not really truly living. See, something has died. So we wake up in a stupor, we drag our butts to work, we bemoan our lousy boss and our lazy co-workers because we have no sense of adventure or transcendence and the, the monotony and the predictability of it all is punishing because we're merely surviving. One of the great uh, satires of American culture that came out uh, some years ago now was the animated movie Wally. Do you remember? Anybody remember this? It was a great one. My kids were younger. I got to watch these without like being weird. But like I, I remember this movie because it was such a brilliant satire on American culture. Uh, the humans had left Earth and all we were doing is living on this self-sustaining uh, spaceship just going around and around and around but not actually coming back to Earth and redeeming it, doing what we were meant to do. And so finally, the captain of the ship remembers and realizes that he doesn't want to just keep doing what they've been doing. Here's the clip. Out there is our home. Home auto, and it's in trouble. I can't just sit here and, and do nothing. That's all I've ever done. That's all anyone on this blasted ship has ever done. Nothing. I'm the axiom you will survive. I don't want to survive. I want to live. Must follow I mean, do we merely want to survive? The way Erwin McManus, a brilliant author, he puts it is, this is how life is supposed to work. It's an adventure, a journey, a trek, filled with uncertainty, excitement, and risk. I am convinced in all of us there is a voice crying out, a confession, waiting to be declared without shame. I want to live. Sometimes this yearning has been neglected or even rejected. The longing to be alive is drowned out by lesser ambitions. We just want to make it through the day, survive, make ends meet, go through the routine, and then exist rather than live. If you have conceded to this lesser form of humanity, let me invite you to hear the roar inside your own soul. You may be apprehensive at first, but let the trembling turn into rumbling. We're going to take a look at what God's word has to say about this in Psalm 16. So if you can open in a Bible to Psalm 16. Bibles are in the front of the seats, and if you didn't have one that you brought, they're in the seats there, or you can use uh, one of your Bible apps or something on your phone or device. 
But Psalm 16, the Psalms are, of course, the Jewish hymnal. They're the songs that Jesus would have sung as he was growing up. And they have been a source of incredible encouragement to Christians and the Jewish people for thousands of years. Psalm 16, verse 1, it starts off, he says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God, apart from you I have no good thing. This idea of having our refuge and our security and our safety, God guarding us. Remember the old childhood idea about guardian angels? Well, we have a guardian God. He's watching out for us. But the psalmist, the reason he can entrust himself to the care of this God is because he genuinely believes that there is no good thing that comes apart from him. You see, every good thing comes from God. Every good. There's nothing good in this world that is apart from him. And can you imagine what our lives would look like if we really did believe this? It would change everything about how we see the world and what we do and how we live. The things we say yes to, the things we say no to, if we really did believe that every good thing is his and his alone. You know, sadly, many churches have lost this powerful view of God. Christian churches haven't been particularly helpful in handling this truth. You know, think of our art, for instance, our statues that we make of Jesus. Most of them look like Jesus is sad or somber, right? Like you can see, he's got just, he's sort of always down. And I understand it. It's the passion of the Christ and the cross, and it's all important, but that's a, that's a part of the, the, the story. There are so many other descriptions of God and of Jesus in the scriptures. And when we talk about our faith, what happens is mostly what we talk about is how much faith costs you, how hard it is, what it is you have to stop doing. Rarely do we talk about every good thing. Instead, we have this sort of somber faith. The Christian religion ends up focusing on rules and rituals and, and obligations. And it becomes stuffy. And it becomes restrictive and passionless. Many Christians have actually been raised trying to get rid of their passions. That's what we've been told. Those, all those passions have to die. They don't talk about purifying them. They talk about getting rid of them. Don't pursue that. Don't get too excited about anything. It's going to lead to sin. This is what we've been told, and it's a lie. In this way, when Christians live in that way, in a passionless way, we actually become more Buddhist than Christian. Buddhism actually tell, tells us we have to let our passions die out. We have to lose our desires. And once we lose our desires, we can be absorbed into a sort of cosmic energy. We become one with it, without personality, without passion. That's not the message of Christianity. It never was. Christianity isn't about losing our identity. It's about living in God's plan with passion and joy, which is why certain statues of Jesus capture it a little bit better, like happy Jesus here. We should go with that. <laughs> We're going to go... So if you're an artist, sing songs, write music, do art, create statues that give us a different picture, not quite so campy, of, of Jesus in joy. Use your art and craft for that. 
Because every good thing, every good thing comes from him. And we have to avoid the false promises. We have to avoid them. Look at verse 4, Psalm 16, verse 4. He says, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take their names on my lips. So that's kind of old style language for saying that they're worshiping other gods. And you see, nowadays, we're free to serve any gods we want to pour out our libations, to put their names on our lips. We can serve anyone we want. We have that kind of freedom. And you might say, well, I don't follow any other gods. I don't have any gods before, you know, God, the God of the Bible. But you see, we have to think about it in context of what is going on in this, in this psalm. I mean, is that really entirely true? Because anything that you put your trust in for your happiness has become a god to you. Anybody that you depend on for your fulfillment is a god to you. Whatever you run to for security, for comfort, or to alleviate your fears is actually your god. And you're pouring out libations of blood and you're putting their names on your lips. That's the picture the scriptures paint for us. See, but God tells us that whoever does that will only find heartache and suffering. Those are false promises. And without God at the center of our passions, they can run wild. And they can end up, we can end up being passionate about all the wrong things. You know, passion's a funny thing like that. It's the fire that can propel us forward. It's an energy that we need to become all that God intended for us to be in this world. And passion can also be a fire that consumes us and leaves us scorched. It can cut both ways. Erwin McManus, again, he said it like this, yet the things we choose in our freedom soon hold us as their prisoners, so much so that we choose freely what we later find ourselves trapped within. Your passions can create exhilaration of freedom while leading you straight into a dark and merciless dungeon. In fact, if you're not careful, the choices you freely make may cost you a life of genuine freedom. This is why the Bible talks about human experience in terms of being slaves to sin. Sin creates the illusion of freedom. In the end, it fools us into seeking freedom from God rather than finding freedom in God. See, somehow we've come to believe that the very thing that is forbidden us is the very thing that we need for our happiness. You know, you go back to the Garden of Eden. So if we're going to avoid these false promises, then you have to take yourself back into the Garden of Eden and just kind of think through it with me for a moment. You have Adam and Eve, right? These two beautiful specimens of humanity living in a place that's like Hawaii, without the tourists, like just idyllic sort of beautiful, and all the food you could ever eat. They said, eat from any of the trees. It's all yours. Everything but the one tree. Everything is yours. So it's an endless, open, free buffet where you would never gain weight. Oh, and they were naked. It's a nudist colony in Hawaii with an all-you-can-eat buffet. And the very name itself, Eden, means pleasure or delight. He said, I'm going to put you in the garden of pleasure. 
That's our birthright. That's what we were made for. And rather than go and live it out in passion over the face of the planet, rather than do what God said, which was multiply, make children and fill the earth with the presence of God, rather than do that, we find Adam and Eve, later in the story, hanging out by the one tree that we weren't supposed to, do, to touch. The one we weren't supposed to. Rather than just get out of Dodge and go do what God had told you to do, we're hanging out by the one tree. Somehow we said, well, that's the only one that's going to really make me happy. It sounds like idiocy when we think of it in, that ter in those terms, but we do this to ourselves all the time. We decide to live for ourselves rather than to live for God. We become self-centered. We become self-absorbed, just like Adam and Eve did. And he's saying, listen, you need to avoid those false promises. And you need to align your heart with God's heart. See, true freedom comes when we align our hearts with his. Look back down in your, your Psalm 16, verse 11. After all this awesome stuff he talks about, he says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand hand. I mean, is that the picture you have of God? He says, there's all of this awesome stuff. I'm giving you boundaries that are good. Your heart can be glad when your eyes are always on God. You get this picture of, of peace and rest and joy and delight. He tells us he's not going to abandon us to death. There's a reversal of the curse going on here in the text. And he says, the joy and eternal pleasures are yours. Not temporal pleasures, not just for this life, but for all of eternity. He's promising them to us if we trust in him. And one of the great secrets of living this abundant, joy-filled, delight-fueled life is found in God's word. He says, listen, you're pursuing God, and when you pursue God, when you put him at the center, it generates passion in you. Passion for life, passion for others, passion for this world. You see, the passion that wells up inside of you begins to overflow the bounds of your hearts and it pours into the world. The way that the New Testament puts it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. There's that idea again. Called to be free free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly in love. I don't have many like celebrity crushes, like almost none, but I kind of have a celebrity crush on Tim Tebow, okay? Because I just think like Tim is awesome. And I know lots of people, they make fun of him. I know lots of people that just think, you know, he's absolutely fantastic. And uh, I understand why. You know, did you hear the one about when Tim Brady, uh, Tom Brady died? Did you hear that one? All right, so Tom Brady, uh, he dies and he goes to heaven, right? And so I don't know how he got to heaven, but the story is that he, <laughs> that he got into heaven. And so he's in heaven, and uh, God is taking him on a tour of heaven. And they kind of pull up into this nice little neighborhood, quaint, and they've got a little house there. And he, it's a little run down, but, you know, it needs some, a little TLC, but it's fine because he finds out that's his. 
And God's like, hey, you should be pretty happy. Like, not everybody gets, a, you know, a house in a neighborhood like this, you know. But, you know, we're going we're gonna to get, he sees his jersey hanging in the window. And he's like, oh, oh this, is, this is great. Like, I'm, I'm really glad I have a house. I have a place in heaven. And we're surprising. And it's great. So God's continuing the tour. And he kind of drives up through a whole bunch of different neighborhoods. And then finally he sees this beautiful part of town. It's got this massive hill. And on the top of the hill is this mansion beyond description. And all of a sudden, as they're kind of pulling up through it, he notices that there's like some Broncos paraphernalia that's pretty, pretty prevalent. And he's like a little bit surprised by that. And then he notices that there's even like, like a Jets bumper sticker on the beautiful car out front. And then, you know, sure enough, there's like a little Mets flag in the property. And he's like, he's like, I'm not sure I know what I'm seeing here. But sure enough, he, they make the corner and they see Tim Tebow's jersey hanging in the window. And now Tom's a little bit miffed. He's like, God, help me understand. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not upset. I'm really glad I have a place. But I mean, come on, like, look at, look at my place and, you know, look at, at Tim's place. Like, really? And God says, oh, no, 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 no. Tom, that's, that's, not, that's not Tim's place. That's Jesus' place. Because, you know, everybody's a fan of Tim Tebow in heaven. Um, and so we were in the city. Uh, with, uh, with the Bolzomis, and we saw Tim Tebow at uh, of an event before Night to Shine. And uh, it was amazing. He was telling this story about when he was on a mission trip as a kid, teenager. And they went to a village. It was somewhere, I think, in the Philippines. And they found out that he had kind of, through one means or another, he found out that there was a kid that they hadn't brought to the event with the American missionaries. They had hit him in a back tent with a couple of his buddies because he, he, he was a, a, a child with special needs. And so they didn't want to show him to their very fancy guests. And through all of that, you know, Tim ended up going in there and praying with the kid and showing the village, the whole tribe, that this was not someone to be rejected, but was someone that God loves and that Jesus died for and the whole nine yards. And then the village starts to warmly accept the kid and all of this stuff. And it was just, it was an incredibly moving story because it shows that, you know, for Tim, it never, it was never about football and it's not about baseball now. I mean, that's all part of his story. It's all part of, of what God has done in his life. But his story had always been about God and showing the love of God to people who desperately need it. To show them the love and the forgiveness that Jesus secured for them because of the cross. That's, that's the kind of living we're talking about. Passionate living. And passionate living awaits you. And it awaits me. You know, this isn't your plan for your life. This is God's plan for your life. We're not talking about you becoming the best version that you want to become. This isn't the Oprah, Osteen, Chopra, you know, version of you. This is the God version of you. It's your God life now. And it's entering into everything that God has planned for you. A life of joy and delight and adventure and self-sacrifice. Of suffering with meaning and purpose. That's what we're talking about here. Because the curse of the living dead has been reversed. Back in our passage in verse 9, Psalm 16, 9, he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You say, a reversal of Eden. No more death. And in the New Testament... The writers tell us that this psalm, this verse, was a prophecy about Jesus. 
It was his resurrection that was foretold here. It was his, it was Jesus not being abandoned to the grave. And because of the resurrection power of Jesus, every one of us can now have hope. That's how the promise is ours. That's how the curse has been reversed. That's how we can now, now have the kind of existence that isn't the walking dead, but instead has a kind of life that really does matter. Because Jesus will give us an abundant life here, and he's promised us an eternal life after death. And he creates a type of freedom, a type of life that will transcend our circumstances. And the curse isn't merely broken for us. See, the freedom is actually found in serving others in the name of God. And that's why we all loved Night to Shine. Because that's what we're made for. To serve others in humility and love in the name of Jesus. You know, if you felt that night, if you were serving that night and you felt just a little bit more alive, then you know that what I'm saying is true. If you felt that stirring in your heart, then you know that what the scriptures tell us is true. That's what we were meant for. Our freedom is not for us alone. This freedom that he's given to us now, it's a kind of freedom that can exist without limits, without restraint. Because now we're free to love others with abandon. We're free to forgive those who hurt us. We're free to be merciful to those who don't deserve it. To be generous beyond what other people would say was prudent. We're free to take great risks and to make great sacrifices. To delight in all of these good things with passion. Now we're free to show compassion beyond the ability of our hearts to muster it. Because we will take his love and his compassion and we will truly live. I want to encourage you to take some next steps toward this end. You know, you've got to think through. Maybe you're, you're at the place in your life where you've never actually put Jesus at the center of your existence. You've never really said, you know what? I will trust that all that he has is good and that every other way is not good. If you've never done that, that's your first step. To say, you know what? I've tasted it. I understand it. I've seen it. I've gotten a hint of it. I don't know it. I don't ex- I understand it all. I'm not saying I get it all. But he seems to be telling me the truth. Jesus was serious about this. And he desires me to live a kind of life that I've never really even imagined was possible. Let him be that first step. Take that first step. Put him at the very center of your existence. And then test him in this. You know, figure out a way to start living outside of your own self-centered world. Look for opportunities to begin to serve others. This is part of what we do here at the church. We create all sorts of opportunities for you to get involved with the lives of other people. We, know we, we, we have set-up crews that get ready for Sunday morning, cafe and, and our communion teams. We have people that help with the kids downstairs, and they're pouring their lives into the next generation on Sunday nights with, you know, with our student ministry. We've got small groups that are forming these little communities where they get to love each other and sacrifice and serve. It is a, it's you taking an actual step to live out the full experience of who you were meant to be in this world. Next week, we're going to take these ideas and we're going to drill them down even deeper. We're going to t- take a look at how everything we do, even our nine to five, even our careers, can all be done for the glory of God. I'm asking that you would consider taking that next step. 
I'm going to invite the band to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song or two as, they prepare, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. So as they do that, I'm going to ask that you would, would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, what, what I'm asking for is that you would meet each person here. You know where we're all at. You know what we wrestle with, and you know what our, what our hearts are, where our hearts are, are leading us. You know, Lord, if we're wrapped up in false promises and if we've yielded to sin and temptation that has brought us away from you, I'm praying, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can do in our hearts. Soften them, Lord. Woo us with your love and with your forgiveness. You've proven it to us on the cross, how desperately you love us and and how far you're willing to go. I pray, Lord, that as we each have our own confession of faith and trust in you and in your word, that you would soften our hearts and draw us ever closer into the kind of life that you have ultimately designed for us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.